this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 4 Student Days and Travels During the first of the five years I worked at the Royal Academy High School in Berlin, my mother came to Europe and in my holidays took me through the greater cities of the old world. How intensely I enjoyed those happy holidays! My mother once again with me, my conscience telling of good work done and rest well earned, and my whole being swelling in the artistic delight of medieval Florence, of ancient Siena, of Rome, the most interesting place on earth, sunny Naples and Venice, the dream city of art and history. Italy, land of the dance and song, took my soul captive, and as the gladsome days passed all too swiftly, and my heart grew glad as a child's on a summer's day, I learned more and more of the hidden meaning of the exquisite poetry of music and movement. At night, when the world was at rest and the moonbeams flooded my room, I danced for the joy that was in me from sheer lightsomeness of heart. Or perhaps we would visit some famous town crowded with art treasures and full of stirring incidents of great men and heroes of the ages or else we would make our way to the wee villages cradled in the mountain valleys of Switzerland or France, and the hush of the mountain snows fell on my spirit with a soothing touch and calmed my soul to a sweet blessedness of rest. One of the most inspiring and delightful trips was to Florence. My stay in Florence would have been a memory landmark to me, if only for the impressions made by Botticelli's wonderful picture, and the fact that as I stood before it, entranced by the rhythm and the flowing lines of the dancing graces, all my indefinite longings and vague inspirations crystallized into a distinct idea. Art is a method of expression the expression of feelings and thoughts through beautiful movements, shapes, and sounds. To try to express in movement the emotions and thoughts stirred by melody, beautiful pictures, and sculpture had become my ambition. But Florence is a very treasure store of beautiful things. The Florence of Savonarola, the monk who tried to wake the conscience of medieval Italy, of Dante, of Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, the splendid, if immoral, Medicis, and a host of others. My stay there was one long delight, and a continual making the acquaintance with the works of great masters of paintings, sculpture, and architecture, in an atmosphere of Italian sky and Italian brilliant colouring, and with a consciousness of the pulse and throb of a joyous, sun-warmed people round about me. 
The sparkle of the sun seems in their veins as its kiss is on their faces. Their wonderful sense of color is an instinct. They seem unable to help being picturesque. One scene lives vividly in my memory. I had gone into the country and met a string of Italian women threading their way up from the banks of the Arno. They were barefooted, and the copper bowls they carried on their beautifully poised heads with a rare unconscious grace flamed red gold in the sunlight. They bore themselves like goddesses on spring elastic feet. Pale lilac and orange composed the colors of the dress of one woman. Coral earrings gave another splash of color. Her dark hair rippled in curls over a low sun-kissed forehead. Her daring eyes sparkled with the sheer joy of life. Her supple, lissom body was a thing of undulations and graceful curves. I just reveled in that picture. Just as I think that I have learnt things from watching the sway of branches, the bend of grass blades before the breeze, the drift of thistle-down, the flash and sparkle and dance of sunshine on rippling water, foam-crested mountain waves dancing a hurricane dance to wild storm music, or snowflakes that seemed to become an embodied spirit as they wreathed a fantastic measure to the song of a winter wind, so perhaps I was learning something, storing something up for the future as those barefoot women filed past with the silent music of motion. Here to me was music, poetry, dancing, harmony all the more perfect because unconscious. It was a far cry from that picture on the Tuscan plain to the cabin of a storm-tossed liner, but I can quite well remember that presently I found myself recalling how I had heard the pitter-patter of elfin dancing feet in the splash of water against the cabin door when my trunk and other things broke loose and I lay awake, my imagination changing, bobbing, jumping trunks and boots and shoes and other escaped prisoners into dancing fairies and little goblins and the biggest trunk of all into a kind of goblin fairy king with the slenderest and most agile legs imaginable. Those days in Florence were one long delight. Thinking of my student friends in Berlin, I often regretted that they were not with me to share my pleasures my wanderings through the great galleries and palaces, the Uffizi, the Academy, or in the coolness of the Duomo, listening to and witnessing some religious ceremony in a play of light and shadow, with censers swinging and clouding the air with heavy-scented incense, the color of vestments and glittering cross, the flickering candles, the acolytes, the role of majestic music, making powerful appeals to one's senses. Or looking at the stone on which Dante was once wont to sit in the cool of the summer evening, dreaming, perhaps, of Beatrice as he remembered her when a boy in her flaming gown and mantle green and white veil. One does not require much imagination to conjure up ghosts in Florence. It was in the Palazzo degli Uffizi that I saw perhaps the greatest of all Botticelli's pictures, The Birth of Venus, 
and also, dripping from the sublime to the ridiculous, met one of my abominations in the shape of two people with blind eyes in a guide-book. Most of us who have traveled are acquainted with the person with a guide-book. It is a most wonderful picture, with its pale colors of early morning, and one feels the wind blowing about Venus as she stands there on the edge of the shell, a vision of love. Sight of it evoked again the longing to give expression in movement, in dance, to the feelings stirring in me when a voice at my elbow, Hello, what's this? Who's this by? What is this number? There they were with the guidebook, a man and a woman, and their almost first thought was, What's the number? They did not use their senses. The beauties of the wonderful canvas had no power to arrest them, hold them, and thrust out thoughts of who had painted it and the number. The man fixed pince-nez stolidly on his nose, and instead of looking at Botticelli, read the guidebook intently, while his wife, close to his elbow, shared it with him. And, having read their guidebook, they went their way. They had mastered the probable date of the painting of the painter and the mechanical fact that the figures were nearly life-size. But of the beauties of that supreme achievement of genius, they knew just nothing. Blind eyes. The man's voice reached me again. Hello, who's this by? What's the number? When I looked towards them, where they stood before a Fra Angelico, their eyes were glued to the book. They were studying it most intently, ramming dates and mechanical facts into their heads. That book might have been their Bible, and their salvation dependent on getting those facts off by heart. Blind eyes! All the ensuing winter my thoughts were filled with pressing ideas. I dared hardly mention them to anyone. I feared to be misunderstood, and a jeering remark would have hurt me dreadfully. So I kept my own counsel, and let idea upon idea gather and grow in my brain quietly and undisturbed by outside counter-influences, until the day of days should come when I felt strong enough to present a logical conclusion to days of thought. Our next notable and influencing journey was to Milan, another treasure store where we stayed some time. I was still studying and playing, but there were times when a feeling of being a prisoner would come over me at the piano. Music was still an intense delight to me, but not all sufficing. I would imagine rhythmic movements to whatever I might be playing. The trunks and boots and shoes had become dancing fairies in my cabin on the liner, and now music would almost visualize into rhythmic motion, shape, and pose. And round about me were the glories of sculpture and painting, the best of great geniuses exercising a moving, great influence, stimulating thought and broadening conception in a hundred subtle ways. I had begun to take life seriously when I put up my hair and discarded short frocks. It was at Milan, in the refectory of Santa Maria della Grazia, 
that I saw another great masterpiece that left a lasting impression, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. The beauty and emotions portrayed in it by an inspired genius rise above defacement and deplorable condition. But it is sad to think that Leonardo's own experiments in colors conspired against the durability of his masterpiece. The great Goethe has written of it, The artist represents the peaceful little band round the sacred table as thunderstruck by the master's words, One of you shall betray me. They have been pronounced. The whole company is in dismay, while he himself bows his head with downcast eyes. His whole attitude, the motion of his arms and hands, all seem to repeat with heavenly resignation, and his silence to confirm the mournful words, It cannot be otherwise. One of you shall betray me. I visited this little refectory day after day, and seemed never able to gather in all the beauty of this wondrous work, and my eyes never wearied of looking at it. It was these great works that filled my soul with longings indescribable. I felt so happy in their presence, and peace reigned supreme in my soul. These days spent wandering amid such glorious and wondrous creations did much to crystallize and form my vague thoughts into a connecting chain, and I desired to return to Berlin to get to work. But my brain was dizzy with all I had seen of human hands making, and I felt I must first hold counsel with nature in its pure simplicity and grandeur. So we wandered to the Italian lakes, to Broad Maggiore, winding Como and Lugano beneath the shadows of the giant Monte Generoso. Here was quiet and a great feast of color, intense skies, blue waters, island gardens, distant snow-capped mountains, purple hills, flooding sunshine. Golden clustering laburnum oleander groves gray against the vivid green of chestnut and walnut tree. Lilies of the valley, great patches of purple columbines, the pine lilies of San Bruno, and the air charged with fragrance. The cities had been wonderful, but here one drank in a sense of breadth and space and freedom and turned from the works of man to the glories of nature and her perfect harmonies. My heart delighted in returning this time to my cozy little study room in the fourth etage of one of Berlin West's comfortable houses, for I knew what was going to mature there, and I rejoiced. I knew I could never more get away from these new ideas, and could hardly wait to get there again. To return to my friends always gave me pleasure unbounded, and now, too, it was almost Christmas, and I could not somehow picture there being such a Christmas in Italy as that to which I was going in Berlin. I could picture great ceremonies with pomp and circumstance in domed churches, purple mantle prelates, picturesque acolytes, much glittering of gold and winking of myriad candles. But I could not picture the Christmas tree, 
the homeliness, the mystery and excitement of presence, the singing of simple carols, and the delight of men and women not ashamed to be as children on Heiliger Abend. I was just looking forward to my Christmas and my Christmas tree and my friends. The Renaissance had birth in Italy, but neither the northern spirit of Christmas nor the Christmas tree. From the quiet and stillness and expanse of the Italian lakes into the Christmas excitement of Berlin, it was like a tonic. Good fellowship was in the frost-bitten air and crisp snow as was fitting on the ground. Sturdy, solid men with relaxed faces, carrying parcels, men who at another time of the year would refuse point-blank to do such a thing. And the touching side of Christmas, simple, working men carrying home a small Christmas tree and presents for the Becherung, the cost of pinching and saving. Many memories of that Christmas returned to me, the crowded streets, the squeak of toys being hawked, and the snow swirling and dancing and wrapping round men and women like white-flecked draperies. Everyone seemed happy, excited, and content to be children, and yet again and again some face, that perhaps of a big working man with a small bundle of presents in one hand and a little tree tucked under the other arm, destined to bring gladness in the spirit of Christmas, candle-lit into his many children home, would bring a lump into my throat. In Germany, Christmas Eve, holy evening as they call it, is the night of the tree, the festival, and the Becherung, or spread of presents, presents wrapped up and neatly tied with ribbon, kept profoundly secret, and arrayed round the base of the tree. I went out and bought my presents and my tree, bushy and broad at the base, sticking out prim and formally, and tapering finely. I am not in the least ashamed to admit the happiness I derived from decorating my tree and anticipating the coming of my friends. I set a snowy cloth on a low table, and on this the tree. Over the branches I drew white wool and sprinkled it with silver frost. On the branches I set short white candles. Round about the base I put my presents, white-papered, and bound with red ribbon. And then I added a touch of color to my white tree, a little cold till now. I took some lengths of narrow red baby ribbon, red for love, and mingled them with the white and frost glitter. Then I set forth in simple dishes refreshment that included Pfefferkuchen, Nüsse, and Stolle. Outside were gathered my friends, they were beginning to sing Stille Nacht. I took my stand beside my twinkling tree, the white candles spoiled by no other lights, and the folding doors of the room were opened. Twinkling candles, carols, presents, faces lit with goodwill and friendship, greetings, merrymaking and laughter, with an undercurrent of those deeper emotions that affect the throat and the beat of the heart. I was happy.